calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents... The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Episode 10. The howl tears the gloom in half. <laughs> Craddock's lighter flickers, blows out, and something with the voice of a breaking train pierces Knox's ears, impales her brain, constricts her heart. The gory squelch grows louder and a hot gust of rancid air like decay in seawater stings her sinuses. The subway car's emergency lights suddenly sputter, and in those instances of feeble light, Knox sees something dark and bulbous growing out of the shadows, its huge tentacles tasting the air, searching. Hell is that? Grates Craddock. The thing makes a new sound, deep rumbling and wet. And in the fluttering light, Knox sees the viscous gleam of teeth like boning knives. That's not good, Knox replies. The creature's tentacles lick the oblivious passengers one by one as it slithers through the car. With each touch, the passengers melt, their liquefied flesh and bone subsumed by the walking black tumor. We need to get the hell out of here. Move! Knox screams as she pushes Craddock down. The eyeless thing jerks toward the sound of her voice. A tentacle whips at them. It takes out a metal pole and crashes between Knox and Craddock, shattering the emergency exit window. The beast shrieks in rage and continues its slow, squelching advance. Craddock stays low and crawls away, passing under a groping appendage and slipping behind the thing before he regains his feet and turns to face it from the back. He unslings his rifle, aims from the waist, and fires. The creature flinches and starts to turn toward him. We can hurt it. Knox reaches for the broken pole. The thing turns away from her completely to focus on Craddock. Two of its tentacles rear back poised to strike. Craddock fires again, and keeps firing as Knox lunges at it, leading with the jagged end of the pole. The beast screams as the metal spike pierces its boneless body, keeps going until it finds something dense and bites deep. The creature wails. Its flailing tentacles dent doors and break windows, open cracks in the metal walls of the train. And with a shudder that shakes the subway car, the monster's arms suddenly go limp as its plaintive cry finally dies. Knox lets go of the pole and falls to her knees, breathing heavily. Puñeta. This was no phantom, no creeping shadow or apparition she could banish by force of will. That fucker was real. She looks around the wrecked subway car. The seats and floor are covered with gore and empty clothes all that remains of the passengers. Knox wonders if they saw the beast before it consumed them. 
They're becoming real. Craddock jumps over the deflated ruin of the creature and yanks Knox roughly to her feet. Gotta move, he growls. Knox doesn't argue. She wants to check on the passengers in the other cars, but there isn't time. Working together, she and Craddock yank open the dented emergency door and exit between the cars. They surge forward on adrenaline, past the stalled train and up the subway tunnel, toward the light of the next station. They need to make it to the Morgan Library and down into the ruins of Nocturne, and they're running out of time. Knox can feel it in her bones. Craddock's good eye is full of worry, but the side of his mouth that can still move is set in a determined scowl. Knox thinks about what she thought she understood about this man when she followed his trail of death through Manhattan. How wrong she's been about so much for so long. Craddock has seen more clearly with one eye than she has with both of hers. Now a fucking cult has his daughter, and Knox knows he'll stop at nothing to save her, facing the Odessa Club alone if necessary. He won't have to. Craddock takes a quick look over his shoulder. Knox follows his gaze. She can no longer see the train, only darkness. You think we're being followed? She whispers. Up ahead, the light of the station dims, changes, now more like the glow of a gas lamp through dense fog. Craddock shakes his head. Baited. Beneath their feet, the tracks have disappeared. The ground is smoother now, softer, following the curve of the rest of the tunnel. The wall quivers in exactly the way a horse's hide does when a fly lands on it. Knox draws her detective special. Where's your rifle? Back there. Empty, answers Craddock. He takes out the long-barreled Colt holstered near his armpit. Back up. A soft, rapid tapping rises all around them, and from pools of shadow come toothy centipedes the size of pythons, crawling on long human fingers. The new creatures don't attack, not exactly. They seem more interested in urging them on, nipping at the air near their ankles, but never actually biting. Knox and Craddock quicken their pace. The tunnel seems to constrict and dilate, as if they were moving through a giant digestive tract. The fog is much nearer now. The light behind it is still too diffused to make out the source. The mist coils and spreads to envelop Knox and Craddock, bringing with it the distinctive odor of smoke and ash. A voice rises, chanting, its cadence slow, repeating like a broken record. She can't make out the words, but she's used to that by now. And there's something else, a tearing of the air itself, a sound of static electricity. The fog thins, the curtain lifts, and their slithering escorts withdraw. More distinct shapes emerge, resolving into solid objects. The charred remains of a horseshoe bar, blackened booths, and overturned tables. And everywhere, there are lighted candles, filling the space with orange flames and vibrating shadows. Somehow, impossibly, Knox and Craddock have crossed from a subway tunnel directly into the burned-out ruins of Nocturne. What was a single voice has become a chorus, murmuring in unison. Knox and Craddock move slowly, following the voices around the bar until a score of figures come into view, black-robed and hooded, standing in a crowded circle before the stage where jazz musicians played only days ago. Now the Tesla coils Knox saw in Klein's laboratory stand in their place, their tops joined by thin branches of electricity, crackling faintly. The cultists' heads are bent towards something on the stage. There are more of them than Knox expected, but they give no sign of being aware that their den has been breached. Knox feels cold, a chill that clenches her heart and seeps into her marrow. She's never believed in fate, never put any stock in destiny, rarely spared a thought for tomorrow. But for the first time, she's gripped by the icy feeling that the war, and the long haunted years that followed, and everything she's lost since she left the island, have led her to this moment. Craddock has stopped moving, and Knox sees fear in his eye. Like her, the grizzled sniper is used to brushing up against death. 
But now his heart, which lives outside of him, is in danger somewhere in this godforsaken place. And suddenly, Craddock seems paralyzed by the possibility that he might fail. Nox squeezes his shoulder. Craddock meets her gaze, and the fear gives way to resolve. He gives her a curt nod and signals left and right. They separate and begin to circle the room in opposite directions, intending to put the cultists between them. There's still a chance they'll come out of this alive, if the cultists aren't armed, if they surrender, if, if, if. Sudden movement, fast, violent. Knox looks in time to see Craddock fall heavily to the floor, his hands reaching for the back of his head before he goes still. Two robed figures stand behind him, one holding the broken leg of a chair. Where the hell did they come from? Knox is about to move when another pair of robed goons grab her from either side. She kicks out, fights to free her gun hand, but her captors are like stone. Knox and Craddock are disarmed and dragged toward the circle of cultists. The chanting stops. The circle opens. On the stage is a pile of familiar bones. One of the cultists pulls back her hood. It's Leclerc, and in her hand is the Black Sea Codex. Welcome, Morgan, she says, lips receding into a wide smile. Knox briefly sees the skull holding those teeth, the darkness writhing within the eye sockets. We're so pleased you're finally here. We knew you were coming, of course, though it took you longer than we'd hoped. We've been waiting for you a very long time. There's movement behind Leclerc. Two men are holding someone. Knox sees long hair. A dress. It's Craddock's kid. The girl struggles with renewed vigor when she sees her unconscious father, her screams muffled by the gray scarf that's been used to gag her. I'm here now, Leclerc, says Knox. You can let the girl go. No, I can't, says Leclerc. This is a plan that's been gestating for a very long time. Everyone here has a part to play, even your troublesome friend there. She spares Craddock a dismissive glance as he moans, stirs. The men who dragged him forward pull him up and pin him tightly between them. A part in what? Knox demands nodding toward the Tesla coils. Making monsters out of shadows? The unknowable is not what you think it is, Morgan, Leclerc tells her. It's been with us from the beginning. It's been leaking into humanity's psyche since we rose from the slime, particle by particle. It feeds on our capacity for atrocity, and in exchange, it takes us into its eternal embrace. The first people to recognize what it truly is, created the earliest incarnation of the Order on the shores of the Black Sea, where they engraved their rituals into a sacred stone that is now lost to us, thanks in part to your Mr. Craddock. Leclerc holds up the Codex. But happily, the knowledge survives. The Order understood we needed only to produce horror of a certain magnitude to allow the unknowable to enter our world fully, feed freely, and change everything. With the Great War, we believed that time had come, so we sought out those who could help us move matters along. Let me guess, Knox says. Those like Demir Kamal Bey. Leclerc nods. Very good, Morgan. You truly are everything he saw in you. Yes. Volkan, or Demir, as I knew him then, was particularly inventive in such matters, and proved very useful to our goals. People throughout Europe felt the psychic horror we hoped would be unleashed, but only a few experienced it consciously. People like you, and Mr. Thrain, and Mr. Kovacs, and Dr. Klein, all of whom were on the continent at that time. Our numbers grew. As Leclerc says their names, three cultists standing near her shed their hoods, revealing each man in turn, faces of corruption, horsemen of the apocalypse, each one greeting Knox with a smile. But still, the unknowable did not fully manifest. When we saw that the war 
was nearing its end, and with Mr. Thrain's help, we came to New York, a city that was already a powerful vortex of anxiety and human misery, and we began again. We lacked only two things, the Black Sea Codex, which was lost and needed to be recovered, and one more member of the Order as attuned to the unknowable as we four. Knox thrusts her chin toward the bones on the stage. This is your doing, isn't it? It was you who killed Sivarek. Leclerc laughs. I didn't have to kill Vulcan. Letting himself be consumed by the unknowable in one of our rituals was merely the fulfillment of a choice he made long ago, when I first recruited him. He was, like all of us, waiting for one more powerful sensitive to complete our ranks, who could see as we do. When he met you, he knew our search was over. Knox spits at her feet. <laughs> I'm nothing like you. Leclerc ignores her. Once Volcan met you and realized you were the one we were waiting for, he was all too happy to finally shed his mortal coil in order to lure you to us. He knew we needed to soften you up first, tenderize the meat before we put it to the flame, as it were. And he rightly guessed you'd be unable to resist the call to solve a mysterious death, especially one with such macabre overtones. You caught a whiff of the cheese, and you ran the maze, never suspecting we designed it specifically for you, so that when you made it to the center, your mind would be at its most receptive. We manipulated you from the beginning. Fuck you, Leclerc, Knox says. Fuck all of you and your suicide cult. Leclerc sighs. Oh, you still don't understand. None of us is going to die. Not even you, Morgan. We're going to live forever. One with the unknowable. Oh, yeah? Knox leans forward and sneers. Well, fuck your big ugly god, too. Leclerc's face changes. Anger and hatred suddenly etched in it like stone. And in that moment, Knox almost believes she's as old as she's supposed to be. The leader of the Order hands the Black Sea Codex to Kovacs and slowly approaches Knox, grabbing her jaw roughly in one hand. You're fortunate I need you alive, mongrel. Leclerc whispers. Knox narrows her eyes. Let the girl go. No. I need you and little Ari both. You've no idea how long I've worked towards this. I was raised in the Order. I've given lifetimes to it. I've survived by moving from one vessel to another before they could fail. But I was cheated of a true childhood. No parents, no friends, no joys. After tonight, when the unknowable is finally part of this world, I'll have a chance to get back what I lost. To start over as Ari. Some second childhood, Knox scoffs. Growing up in hell. Leclerc's eyes blaze. Knox feels her skin being pierced by Leclerc's sharp, polished fingernails. They come away wet with blood. She turns and strides back to Sivarek's remains. Leclerc stretches out her arm and holds her blood-tipped hand, palm down over the stainless white bones. A grinning Kovacs steps forward, holding the open codex up to Leclerc, and she resumes her song, mouthing words in a strange language Knox has heard before, words she heard in Craddock's flat, their syllables now singed into her memory. me. One by one, the drops fall from Leclerc's nails, and the bones drink. Leclerc turns back to Knox and hisses. Bring her! The men holding Knox pull her forward. She tries digging her feet into the floor, to no effect. Her feet slide over the soot-stained hardwood. She hears a guttural snarl from Craddock as he comes around a second before someone standing behind him covers his mouth with a cloth napkin. Knox sees fire and desperation in his eye. 
Her heart breaks, but she's glad to see him conscious and angry. The men force Knox to kneel at the foot of the stage. Thrain, Leclerc beckons, and the racist millionaire steps forward, holding a dagger. There are signs inscribed in the blade that Knox recognizes from the Codex. Her arm, says Leclerc. One of the men holding Knox forces her left arm straight out over the skeleton. Knox struggles against it, but his grip is like iron. This close to the static field, the hairs on her arms stand on end. Thrain leans in and lifts the dagger. His smile, predatory. Let the bones of our fallen brother be adore. Leclerc intones. Let the blood of our unwilling sister be the key. And let them together be the anchor for that which longs to take form. Thrain runs the tip of the dagger across Nox's palm. Her skin parts. The blade is cold. The pain is hot. Blood wells up from the wound, dark and gleaming. Warmth runs down her skin. The pain intensifies. Nox screams. The blood falls in viscous ropes on Sivarek's skeleton. And again, the bones take in what they seem to thirst for. Dr. Klein, Leclerc calls and the scientist moves to fiddle with a control box situated off to one side. The static between the Tesla coils intensifies, raining lightning on the bones. Knox's head swims, her vision blurs. But even through the darkening haze, she sees Sivarek's bones suddenly sprout branches that arch over the heads of those gathered closest to them. She hears screams when several cultists at the outer edge of gathering are impaled by the branches as they bore into Nocturne's floor and keep going. It feels like an earthquake. The candles dim. The air shimmers. Darkness bleeds into Nox's vision, covering the world in squirming shadows. The unknowable invades her mind. A city in ruins. Cyclopean buildings vomiting green smoke into a purple sky. Black rivers encircling Manhattan. Strange tentacled creatures with conical bodies and long twitching tails swimming through the sewers. Rotting corpses clawing their way up the sides of buildings, their bones visible through tears in their blackened flesh. The Empire State Building collapsing with a groan of metal, stone, and exploding glass. An emaciated child crying under a moonless sky in the ashen desert that was once Central Park. And then Knox is falling, falling, falling. A gunshot rings out. She sees Kovacs in the act of turning, a ragged bloody hole where his left eye used to be. His body falls and she watches the codex fly out of his hand, lost in the sudden eruption of chaos around her. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Gunsmoke coils from the barrel of Ray Beaumont's 38 as Laszlo Kovacs falls dead. Ray's never killed anyone before, not during peacetime but any misgivings on his part are short-lived. As far as Ray is concerned, everyone in this den of iniquity is a direct threat to Knox's life. That justification might or might not hold up in court, but Ray, like Danny Donovan and Abe Moskowitz, 
and the trio of baseball bat-wielding teamsters who have stormed Nocturne from the secret stairs of the club's main entrance, have come too far and risked too much to let anything stop them from getting Morgan safely out. Avanti, ragazzi! shouts Tommy as he and the other teamsters spread out and swing away, swatting aside one robed figure after another as the burned-out club erupts into panic and chaos. Cracking bone is punctuated by screams of rage and pain as cultists fall or scatter. One particularly big cultist makes the mistake of going after Abe. The old boxer's haymaker comes out of nowhere, followed by an uppercut that snaps the man's head back and lays him out flat. He doesn't get up. Abe isn't even breathing hard as he seeks out his next opponent. Danny looks completely out of place in his sleek tailored suit, and that works to his advantage. Nobody thinks the silver spoon is any kind of threat. And truth be told, Gray is more than a little worried to see Danny just standing there, frozen, as one of the hooded figures comes for him. But the kid is waiting for his moment, and when it comes, Danny moves fast and with purpose, grabbing a nearby chair and breaking it across the side of the cultist's head. After that, Ray doesn't worry so much about Danny. He focuses instead on getting to Morgan. She's still bent to one knee in front of that skeleton on the stage. No one is holding her captive now. Instead, two hooded figures appear to be guarding her while the bones continue to branch out and sprout roots into the floor of Nocturne. The twin machines crackling with electricity on either side seem to be accelerating the growth, and the club is fast becoming briar patch of jagged white shoots, many of them as thick as a human thigh. Ray sets aside the insanity of the situation and considers the task at hand, getting through those men between him and Morgan. He only has five bullets left, 11 if he has the chance to reload when his current rounds are spent. But Ray isn't anxious to use them even if he could be certain of making every shot count. The mere sight of his weapon is enough to clear a path, especially after the shot that killed Kovacs. But those two near Morgan will put up a fight, and one of them, one of them is holding Knox's gun. The missing trigger guard is a dead giveaway. The cultist's hand is shaking as he looks wildly around the room. However he expected this night to unfold, this isn't it, and matters have escalated far beyond what he was prepared to cope with. The hooded goon fixates on a target across the room and raises the revolver. Time slows. Ray tracks the man's aim, sees Danny running straight at him. Ray brings his weapon up, but he's denied a clear shot by the arching bones. A shout forms in Ray's throat as he races forward. He knows he's too late. But Morgan turns at the sound, and what Ray sees freezes his soul. Morgan's eyes are black. Knox sees Kresnik's revolver in the cultist's hand, sees Danny running toward it. She watches in horror as the man squeezes the trigger, her scream lost in the crack of gunfire as she tackles the cultist to the floor. Her ears are still ringing as she pins his gun with her knee and pummels him with her fist. She punches him in the face and keeps punching until the cultist goes limp and her knuckles come back bloody. Then she pries the detective special from his hand and levels the barrel between his eyes. You killed Danny, you son of a bitch. You killed Danny with my gun. Boss! Knox's ears are still recovering from the gunshot. She almost doesn't hear the shout, but what comes through is enough to take her finger off the trigger. Boss, I'm okay, he missed. Knox looks up, sees Danny looking worriedly at her, and for a frozen moment, she doesn't move fighting back tears. Morgan, are you okay? Your eyes were black a second ago. Knox says nothing, but she doesn't protest as Danny pulls her away from the stage, away from the Tesla coils and the old man's bones that are still spreading like a cancer. She sees a new branch rise up and plunge down into Kovac's body, piercing the man's back with wet crunch. Her mind is racing to catch up. In the pandemonium around her, she can find no sign of Leclerc or Thrain, but she sees Ray shooting a cultist about to attack him with a fire axe. She sees a bunch of bruisers with baseball bats tearing through the swarm of robed enemies. And she hears Abe, 
his gruff voice cutting through the din of battle. His warning clear as day. Hey, Spoon! Duck! Danny drops instantly, and Abe is suddenly there, advancing on a cultist who was about to sucker punch Danny from behind. Abe brings up his fists and throws a straight right. His torso pivots, and his back leg adds momentum to the punch. Abe's knuckles connect with the man's nose. Cartilage crunches, and blood sprays from both nostrils as the cultist stumbles back, falls, doesn't get up. Then, Knox hears a child scream, and her blood turns to ice. Danny and Abe are fighting back to back when Danny takes a punch to his left eye and feels the swelling begin almost instantly. Shit, Franklin's not gonna like that, he thinks, as the explosion of pain sends a new shot of adrenaline into his system. The cultist is big, but he's also slow as molasses. The man pulls back his hand, telegraphing his next move. Even blind in one eye, Danny sees the punch coming and sidesteps it easily. The right hook sails past his head, and Danny drives his fist into his opponent's ribs. He kicks the back of the cultist's knee, and the hooded figure collapses and groans like a wounded animal. Danny's whole body hurts, especially his face. Then he realizes Knox is nowhere to be seen. Where's Morgan? He shouts at Abe. Abe sounds dismayed. I thought you were watching out for her. You told me to duck. God damn it. Abe takes out another attacker with a roundhouse right. She can't have gotten far. Go help Ray. I'll find Morgan. Not a chance. Listen to me, kid. No, Abe, you listen. Danny grabs hold of a charging cultist by the robe and swings him headfirst into a curving column of bone. The man staggers, lands on his hands and knees, and crawls away. I came here to get the boss out, same as you. Ray doesn't need my help. Neither do your friends, but Morgan does. I'm going with you. Abe grins and shakes his head. And Danny sees something like grudging respect in the older man's eyes. I always knew you had Moxie Spoon. All right, let's go find her. Jules, Tommy, and Frankie know only one thing. The hooded bastards are the bad guys. You see one, you knock his teeth out. They like plans that aren't complicated. But when they see madness around them, bones growing all over the room, black eyes staring out from faces etched with murder, they wonder for a second if they're in over their heads. Then they see Abe running forward and laying a guy out, and two men holding a girl against her will, and their instincts kick in. It's go time. While everyone runs, Jules walks. Let the bad men come to me. None of them have the reach to hurt him, and he'd prefer to go home with an untouched face. If he walks in the door looking messed up, his missus will mess him up all over again. Putting everything behind each swing is the best way to make sure that doesn't happen. Frankie and Tommy circle around the room to attack from different directions, forcing the cultists to split their attention. Some of the men in front of Frankie look confused, as if they're just waking up. Too bad for them. He swings. The bat buries itself in the first hooded figure's stomach. Air explodes from the man's mouth with a loud grunt, and the cultist folds in half. Frankie follows it up with a swing to the side of his head. The bat thuds against the man's skull hard enough for Frankie to feel it in his elbows and comes back bloody. The man drops, twitches twice, stops moving. That one isn't getting up anytime soon. Frankie moves on to the next. More than any of the other Teamsters, Tommy is eager to bust some heads. His eyes have already found the cult's intended victims. A bleeding woman, a gagged little girl, Every abuse his old man ever inflicted on his mom and sisters comes back to him and sets his blood to boil. So when the first two cultists rush him, Tommy kicks with everything he has. His right foot sinks into the groin of the man on the right, who gurgles something, hisses, drops to his knees, curls into a ball. The second man grabs Tommy's shirt and punches him in the mouth. Tommy's lower lip smashes against his teeth and he tastes blood. 
He uses the shirt to pull the man forward while dropping his head. The top of Tommy's skull crushes into the man's nose. The hand latched onto his shirt goes limp. About 20 feet away, the young girl is still being held. Tommy isn't going to let that stand. From somewhere in the midst of the battle, gunfire erupts again. Multiple rounds. Tommy ducks. He can't see the shooter. Can't tell who the targets are. He just hopes it's one of the good guys. Craddock has shot six men, and his gun is empty. The cultist he's facing now doesn't know that, so he has a death grip on the wrist of his gun hand, as if his life really depends on it. Amateur. Instead of trying to overpower his attacker or punch his way free, Craddock reaches down and grabs the cultist's balls. The crunch he feels is so satisfying, it almost brings a half-smile to his damaged face. The man howls and releases Craddock, doubling over in pain. Craddock grabs him by the back of his head and smashes his knee into the cultist's face. He crumples to the floor and moans. Another attacker comes at him. Craddock throws out his right elbow and teeth explode from the cultist's mouth. Craddock finally tosses his empty weapon away and reaches back to check under his shirt. These idiots didn't take his other backup piece. Or his knife. Fucking amateurs. Once the melee started, it was too easy to break free of his captors, recover his weapon, and go to work. He pulls a fresh gun out and resumes his search for Ari. Craddock hears her scream, sees her across the room, and he's instantly in motion. Her gag has slipped, and two cultists are dragging her away toward one of the deeper recesses of the club. Craddock finds a clear shot and stops to take aim. But then a man he's never seen before is suddenly blocking their path. His arms are covered with tattoos, and he's holding a bloody baseball bat. He swings away, and the head of one cultist whips sideways before he drops like a marionette with its strings cut. The second man holding Ari hesitates. He lets her go to throw a punch, and Craddock takes the shot. The cultist drops with a neat hole through the side of his hood. The tattooed man pulls Ari protectively to him, looking for the new attacker. When he sees Craddock's face, the smoking gun in his hand, he looks ready to charge. Craddock is spared from having to shoot him when Ari pushes past and throws herself into her father's arms. Pa! It's the sweetest sound Craddock has ever heard. She's warm, alive, in one piece. A miracle in his arms. His heart expands until it fills his chest and he feels like he can't breathe. The tattooed man stares at both of them. Pa! She says again. It's okay, says Craddock. You're okay. They're the only words that come to mind. Everything else he feels are things he could never put into words. Thank you, Craddock tells the tattooed man. My pleasure. I'm Tommy. Get your girl out of here, buddy. We'll take care of these bastards for you. Craddock takes one last look around for Knox. He sees her across the room. Their eyes meet, and she looks relieved to see Ari with him. She nods to him and moves on, disappearing behind the tangle of bones. He tells himself Knox can finish this without him. And if she can't, that she'd still want him to get Ari as far from here as possible. Craddock allows himself no time to reconsider as he takes his daughter by the hand and leads her out of Nocturne. Knox staggers along the edge of the nightclub, steadying herself with her free hand pressed to the wall as she moves. The tiles ripple and pulse beneath her touch. Thick, dark veins bulge out and retreat, and the same questions circle the deepening drain of her mind. Where's the Claire? Where's Klein? Where's Thrain? She can feel the unknowable within her like insect legs scratching the inner surface of her skull. It wants her to stop. It wants her to understand, to see it as the others do, to welcome it. She passes in front of what was once a huge mirror, placed there to give the club the illusion of more space. The ornate frame is charred, and most of the glass is gone. The jagged section that remains is fragmented, reflecting Knox's oily black eyes many times over. 
Close your eyes. Count to. Knox never finishes the thought. A spike of pain impales her, forces her to her knees, punishing her. She shakes it off, comforts herself with the knowledge that Ari is safe, and focuses on her current goal. Somewhere, deep within the labyrinth of Nocturne, she'll find Leclerc and make her reverse what she's done, send the unknowable back into whatever abyss it came from. I know what you're thinking, someone says quietly. Knox looks up. Standing in her way, leaning against one of the tusks of Sivarek's bones, is Thrain. The man seems completely unconcerned about the carnage still underway in the rest of the club, and his usual arrogance and contempt for her is now tinged with something new. Pity. If you really knew what I was thinking, you'd be running, she tells him as she regains her feet. Thrain chuckles. <laughs> so much wasted bravado. You must accept that it's over, Knox. The unknowable is here. It's among us. I know you can feel it. Thrain rests his hand against the bone branch, tilts his head as if straining to hear a song through the marrow. The air moves with its breath. The very bedrock beneath us trembles with its pleasure. Thanks to you and Sivarek, the unknowable at last has physical form. And in the throes of its ecstasy, we are free to be our true selves, to continue the work of men like Demir Kamal Bey and burn this world clean. The world's already a drumfire, Thrain. It doesn't need people like you to fan the flames, and it doesn't need your dark god warming itself in the heat. Oh, but that's the great beauty of the unknowable, Nox. We never really needed to do anything. Humanity's natural inclination toward cruelty is what first drew it to us, and what has continued to feed it through the centuries. The present course of our so-called civilization is what sustains it now, helps it to spread and grow stronger. The Order merely hastened the inevitable. But if we had done nothing, our natures would still give it power. Your nature, not mine, Nox says through her teeth. Thrain smiles. You know better than that, Nox. The unknowable is now one with this city. It's anchored to our world through you. Your life is its life. My life, Nox repeats. And in doing so, something clicks in her mind. The only surprising thing to her is the ease with which she accepts it. She sighs, feeling a great weight lift. Thank you, Mr. Thrain. Thrain scoffs. For what? For helping me to finally see what needs to be done. With emotion made fast and fluid by many years of practice, Knox raises Kresnik's gun. But instead of aiming it at Thrain, she holds it beneath her jaw, aiming it toward her brain. Wait, wait, Thrain cries. And for the first time, the man's supreme confidence fails, giving way to sheer naked fear. Knox, don't do this. It's like you said, Thrain. My life is its life now. Knox pulls down the hammer of her revolver. Only stands to reason that my death is its death. Stop! Thrain screams and lunges for the gun. It's a stupid, desperate move, but it's the only one he's got. Knox almost smiles when she pulls the trigger. Oh no. 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 Thrain's hand closes over her pistol even as she frantically fires again. And again. The chamber's full. She knows it is. Kresnik's gun has never misfired. Not in all the time he owned it, and not in the years since he died. Thrain finally succeeds in forcing the detective special away from her head. And only then, when it's angled toward the ceiling, does it fire under the desperate squeeze of Knox's trigger finger. Coming to the same realization as Knox, Thrain laughs and shoves her away from him. With a guttural howl of rage, Knox presses the gun to her temple, and it once again clicks, uselessly. She holds it to her heart, and still it refuses to fire. 
It would appear, Thrain taunts, that the Unknowable has no intention of letting you die. Nox looks around at the rest of the club, the floor strewn with black-robed bodies. Among the few combatants still standing are Danny and Abe and Ray, and the bruisers they brought with them, all weary and wounded, all here because of her. Thrain follows her gaze. Your friends may have overwhelmed our acolytes, but they've won nothing. The Unknowable is here, Knox. Leclerc and Klein have already fled. Come with me now. Further defiance will bring you only more pain. Give in, and all your torment will end. You can finally stop fighting. You can finally rest. Nox stares at her gun. Its engraving catches the light. Then, she turns it on Thrain and shoots him through the heart. He staggers back. Nox keeps firing, emptying her rounds into his chest. Thrain looks down at the bullet holes in shocked disbelief, at the blood seeping through the robes. He's already dead. His brain just hasn't caught up with the fact yet. Thrain looks up at Knox and almost reaches for the gun, before his body finally gives up and surrenders to gravity. And yet I move, she whispers before she races back toward the stage. Screams follow in her wake. The desperate pleas of her friends who have figured out what she intends to do are filled with horror by it. Morgan! No! Boss, don't! She can feel the unknowable trying to stop her. In the seconds she has left, she feels pain. The Tesla coils crackle and burn the air. Forks of lightning still striking surround the Sivarek remains, now unrecognizable, amid the growth fed by blood, black magic, and mad science. Nox flings herself between the coils. Phosphorescent light blinds her before she can feel anything, and the world goes white. The roar of static is silenced, and the light goes out. She feels numb, weightless, but she also senses movement, like she's being jostled in the back of a fast-moving car. Someone is pressing their fingers to her wrist, checking her pulse. She knows that touch. Sometimes she misses it. Sometimes she longs for the comfort it once gave her, for its unfailing tenderness. She feels something hitting her in the chest. Her lungs expand, deflate. Muffled voices argue amongst themselves, alarmed and frantic, but sounding very far away. She cracks her eyes open. Above her, Knox sees the city, the lighted windows of office buildings. Some of the windows are eyes, staring down at her. Some of them are mouths filled with teeth. Her eyelids close. One of the voices becomes clearer. It sounds like Ellen. Stay with me, Morgan. Stay with me. Knox opens her eyes again. She's in Abe's taxi. Ellen is pounding on her chest. A cloud of black birds flies into the car. Their bodies break against the windows. Her head swims, her vision dims. The world is made of gray, gelatinous flesh. Writhing tentacles reach out from random corners and windows. Oh God, I can't stop it. I can't stop it. Tentacles start reaching for the taxi, barely missing it. She wants to scream, wants to help Abe evade them. She can't move. Her body is now a prison. Knox blinks and sees a beautiful beach. She's back in Puerto Rico. Small waves lap at the shore. Two seagulls fly above her. In the distance, a single cloud accents the beauty of the deep blue sky. The water is clear. White foam caresses her feet before retreating, carving lines around them, carrying a bit of her essence into the ocean, pushing it all the way to the horizon and beyond. A child laughs somewhere near, but Knox's eyes are glued to the ocean, the sky, the incessant waves. She knows it's summer. 
Idle days full of games and laughter ahead of her like a beautiful promise. She smiles. She's happy. Morgan, please. Ellen's voice. Knox blinks again. The city outside is a smoking corpse. Charred buildings look like monstrous skeletons. Their guts, burned by unholy fires, no water can extinguish. Sinkholes swallow chunks of New York as a giant orb of inky tentacles floats in purple sky. She closes her eyes again. She wants to return to the beach and stay there. She wants to remain immersed in beauty and happiness forever. She wants to go home. She wants to know what home means. She wants peace, and it's coming. She lets go of something she didn't know she was holding. She floats now, happy. Nothing. Nothing. The sounds of waves. It fades. Fades. And Knox's heart stops. You're listening to The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, narrated by Pilar Uribe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox is written by Kay Arsenault Rivera, Brooke Bolander, Gabino Iglesias, and Sonny Moraine. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.